Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and as always, we are talking Colorado true crime. So first, I want to give a big shout out to my returning listeners. You know that you guys are the best, and you are what keeps me coming back. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. It's great to have you here, and you have 15 other episodes to go and binge if you haven't already. Just a reminder, you know I have to say it, please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. This helps other people find Altitude Crime and grow our crime clan. And Altitude Crime is close to hitting listeners in every area of the United States. So if you have friends in Kentucky, West Virginia, Alaska, Hawaii, or Puerto Rico, Tell them to get listening. It would be so cool to have all of the U.S. covered. And my international listeners, you know you guys are great. We are racking up the countries. I think we're up to about 18 right now. So never thought that this podcast would quite grow to that size. So it is super cool and you guys are the best. So today we are talking about the state of Colorado versus Mark Redwine. He, again, is charged with the murder of his 13-year-old son, Dylan Redwine, which we have all been waiting a long time for some resolution on. And the trial wrapped up a lot sooner than I thought it would. They were projecting that it would go till the end of July, and here we are. We have a resolution, and it's the 17th that I'm recording this, so... Now, if you are newer to the podcast and you have not listened to the two-parter episode about this case or either of the updates that I put out, I would really recommend going and listening to those first. I am going to be covering the second half of the trial as well as the verdict and sentencing to come, so you are not going to get the full picture just from this episode, so I definitely recommend checking those out. But I have chatted your ear off enough. Let's get into it. So for the sake of clarity, I will do as I have in the past. I will always refer to Dylan as Dylan, his mom as Elaine. And if I'm using just the last name Redwine, I am referring to Mark Redwine, the defendant. So we pick up here with the remaining prosecution witnesses. The next up was Karen Gummins. She is the handler for Molly, the cadaver canine that was used in the investigation. With her experience, she categorized the findings at Mark Redwine's home as a large sample of odor. Karen showed many exhibits during her testimony and talked about the accuracy of cadaver dogs, as well as Molly's specific abilities and accuracy. And this probably drew some of the most heated arguments between the lawyers. The defense often objected throughout her testimony, and there were quite a few bench conferences with the judge. Karen had begun to help with the investigation in August 2013. This was just right after Dylan's first set of remains were found. Molly was introduced to evidence from this specific find, and prior to taking her out, detectives actually tested Molly a bit. They took her to an impound lot, 
And at that impound lot, she correctly hit on two cars that had had bodies in them at some time. So once they concluded that sort of test, they then went on to Mark Redwine's home. At his home, Molly the canine hit near the garage, as well as the back of Redwine's pickup truck. She also had seven hits on the main floor of the house, which was consistent with the prosecution's theory that Dylan was killed in the living room. Karen said that Molly picking up on the scent multiple times could have been due to a deceased body being moved around the home. They then took Molly out to Middle Mountain Road. While Molly had multiple hits in the area, it did not lead to any remains. As we know, Dylan's skull was not found until two years later. On cross-examination, the defense really, you know, tried to hit home with the accuracy of cadaver dogs, and Karen admitted that they do not come without their faults. But she did also talk about finding odor within the home. She said the conditions mean a cadaver dog can potentially smell that for a long time. You think about it, the area is enclosed, you don't have things like weather, snow, rain, things like that that are essentially washing that odor out. She did also disclose that while cadaver dogs can find the scent, there is no way for them to confirm who the scent belongs to. These dogs aren't DNA testers, and if I'm going to be blunt, once we're gone, our flesh kind of all smells the same as we decompose. That's the beauty of life, right? (laughs) Next up was Dr. Robert Kurtzman. He is a forensic anthropologist and the chief medical examiner in Montana. He explained the perimortem fracture a bit more. This was in regards to the fracture found on Dylan's skull. They can tell that this injury is perimortem, meaning occurring right at or right after death, because the bones are still more elastic. They haven't dried out, they haven't lost blood supply, and they're not reaching that brittle point. He could not confirm cause of death, but could reconfirm that the type of injuries found on Dylan's skull were certainly suspect. He said he only came short of being able to know the cause of death because of the advanced state of decomposition in Dylan's remains. Being that only Dylan's bones were left, a lot of evidence was lost that could have been found on the skin, the organs, soft tissue, that would have gleaned a lot more light on his cause of death. The defense brought up in their cross-examination that much of the information that Dr. Kurtzman had about the case came directly from the indictment written up for Mark Redwine. They kind of tried to plant the seed that he was being biased, and they also questioned the possibility of animal activity again, but this really didn't get very far. Next on the stand was La Plata County Sheriff Office investigator Tom Cowling, He spoke with Mark Redwine multiple times through the searches and investigation into Dylan's disappearance. He ended up having a really hard time getting a hold of Mark Redwine prior to the Middle Mountain search in June 2013. This is the same search that revealed Dylan's first set of remains. Redwine chalked it up to that his phone wasn't working, But as it turns out, the phone was found in his truck a little later on and in good working condition. Redwine again said, 
It wasn't working. He got it fixed. Tom Cowling did say that Mark Redwine cried when he got the news that Dylan had been found and that he was deceased. On cross-examination, Cowling explained that after Dylan went missing, Redwine had been harassed and his home had also been vandalized. Additionally, Cowling had confidently told Mark Redwine in March 2013 that he would be prosecuted. While you can doubt the professionalism of this, here we are with a prosecuted Mark Redwine. The prosecution then called another dog handler named Ray Randolph. She was the handler that did the initial search with the pillowcase that Mark Redwine had given her. She thought that there was a high probability that Dylan's scent was never on it, meaning that Dylan most likely never used the pillowcase. Other dogs at the beginning of the search had also used the same item and picked up no scent. So what Ray did was she concluded this after doing a test with her dog, Sayla. She arranged a number of random items in an area with the pillowcase out for Sayla to go see. She had Sayla sniff Dylan's baseball cap, which was confirmed to be his. But when Sayla took that scent and went out into these items, she didn't hit on any of them, including the pillowcase that Dylan had supposedly used. Now, you could chalk this up to her just not having a good hit. But what she did next was Ray did the same exact run again, but instead she placed another item that had been confirmed to be Dylan's, which was a shirt among these items. And she kind of rearranged them so that Sayla wouldn't go right back to the same areas. When she got the scent from the baseball cap this time, Sayla hit on Dylan's item right away. I think you can say for a science that is up to a lot of different variables, this is a pretty good kind of control test. So on cross-examination, the defense brought up the possibility of cross-contamination on these items and that that maybe would be why Sayla didn't hit on that item. And Ray agreed to this. It certainly was a possibility. Ray said that in an ideal situation, she would have collected the scent items herself. But this wasn't possible since all of Dylan's belongings in Durango were missing and those items had to be brought from his mother's home. However, she did say that Dylan's items that were collected by the family had been collected in a way that she had instructed. They were each bagged separately inside a larger bag, and that improved the possibility that they weren't contaminated. Certainly didn't rule it out, but certainly made it better that there would be less cross-contamination. The defense also noted that Sayla's certification had expired. But Ray explained that in addition to these not being required, these certificates are actually used for dogs trained on a lower level than Sayla. Next on the stand for the prosecution was La Plata County Sheriff's Office investigator Jim Ezel. He showed a drone video that explained where all of the sites were in relation to each other, including Mark Redwine's home and the two sites where Dylan's remains were found. He testified that while he knew Mark Redwine had participated in a search in December 2012, just after Dylan had gone missing, he did not recall him attending any other searches for the boy. Jim Ezel was also there when Dylan's initial remains were found in June 2013. He explained that the coroner was not called until the bones were confirmed to be human. 
This is something that the defense has brought up multiple times in the first part of the trial. Once on the scene, the coroner did not ask to have jurisdiction over the scene and let the sheriff's office continue the investigation. Jim also talked about how the area was actually excavated in an attempt to find other remains belonging to Dylan, which this was a new piece of information for us. They had been joined by a forensic anthropologist from Fort Lewis College located in Durango. The ground was thoroughly sifted through, metal detectors were employed, but they ended up finding no additional remains. He also reconfirmed the timing of Dylan's last communication with anyone via phone or iPod that evening that he arrived in Durango around 9.37 p.m. And this is something that other witnesses for the prosecution have spoken about already. The defense questioned Jim on if animal bones were found near Dylan's skull when it was found, and this also became a kind of heated questioning. Jim denied that there was any animal bones found right nearby and that they had searched around 200 feet up the mountain. He also confirmed that Dylan's possessions had never been located, which is a question that I have had from very early on. The last witness for the prosecution is actually somebody we've talked about before, FBI agent John Grusing. Now, if you've been a listener for a while, you might remember him from the Scott Kimball cases in episodes four and five. So I kind of feel like we know him really well already. John Grusing had arrived in Durango on November 25th, just shortly after Dylan went missing. And he was really assigned to talk with Mark Redwine because Redwine's statements were really starting to not add up as he was talking with authorities. So the first thing he asked Mark Redwine to do was to write what is called a free narrative. This is basically somebody's explanation of what happened. Investigators then use this to look at what people might be vague or detailed in to start getting the investigation honed in. This particular statement was read in court, and the details of the night prior to Dylan's disappearance were very, very specific. According to Grusing, when Mark Redwine didn't see Dylan when he got home that morning after going out to run errands, he thought that Dylan had gone fishing. So he said he looked around for Dylan's fishing pole, saw that it was gone, so figured that confirmed that Dylan was out, and Mark Redwine decided to lay down and take a nap. So keep in mind, Redwine had already texted Dylan at this point a couple of times and received no reply. So you could frame this as nefarious, but it also could just be that Dylan's an independent kid and he's out doing his thing. So not a smoking gun in and of itself. Redwine told Grusing that Dylan may have run away to get away from his mother, Elaine, So this definitely created a red flag for John Grusing, because why would a child that was already hours away from his mother still run away? That didn't really seem to add up. So Grusing visited Mark Redwine again the next day, but didn't really get much more information out of him. So this was a point where he began working with local investigators to get a search warrant because things just weren't adding up and he clearly wasn't getting much more of anywhere with Mark Redwine. John Grusing then had a third interview with Mark Redwine in the FBI office. Redwine had said that Dylan had a cold sore that had been bleeding, but when he was pushed and asked if Elaine could confirm this, he backed off of the story. 
So he then said that Dylan had been hit in the face with a Nerf football that they had been tossing around the night that Dylan arrived in Durango. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been pummeled with plenty of Nerf brand items and they never break the skin. So this was another red flag for John Grusing. Because before this third talk with Redwine, Mark Redwine had insisted that Dylan had no injuries when he arrived in Durango. So certainly seeing some backpedaling here from John Grusing's point of view. In this interview, Mark Redwine also started to back off of the runaway theory and instead said that it could have been a stranger abduction. Somebody just took Dylan randomly. And then lastly, the angle of an animal attack surfaced. In John Grusing's testimony, he cannot remember if it was Redwine or himself that brought that up, but he was able to recall that Redwine got kind of excited at the prospect, which I would say is odd response when you're talking about your own son. If it was Grusing that brought it up and Redwine was guilty, as has now been proven, he must have kind of thought that was an out if an FBI agent would bring it up then, you know, it had to have some validity to it and then kind of ran with the story. Grusing also tried to really push Redwine, saying that what happened was probably an accident and just tried to bait him into opening up and admitting to what had happened. But Redwine's only reaction was that he needed to go think. So after about three weeks of prosecution witnesses that is the end of the prosecution's testimonies from people. So it turned over to the defense and the defense started calling witnesses in their case. As we go through this, you'll see that there was certainly no smoking gun in the defense's testimonies from their witnesses. But just like the beginning of the trial, they did try to chip away at reasonable doubt with small questionings of different witnesses. They brought to the stand forensic anthropologist Dr. Bruce Anderson. This put into question when Dylan's skull was actually fractured. Dr. Anderson has been a forensic pathologist for Pima County Medical Examiner's Office in Arizona for many years. He did agree that Dylan's fracture on his skull was perimortem, but he contended that a perimortem fracture could actually happen up to two or three weeks after death. He posed that the drying out of bones takes a long time, and an injury can appear similar to that of a just-deceased person just because those bones are keeping their elasticity. He did agree with Dr. France, who testified for the prosecution, that there is no way to determine if the fracture was specifically Dylan's cause of death. Again, since soft tissue was missing from Dylan's remains, we are just never going to get that full picture of exactly what caused his death. Dr. Anderson also pointed out that while there was the fracture, he could not find the point of impact for whatever hit Dylan. To conclude that, the expert would need the remaining parts of Dylan's skull that have not yet been found. He did, however, dispute Dr. Francis's findings that the two markings on Dylan's skull were indicative of sharp force trauma. He instead concluded that these were shallow grooves that naturally appear on the skull. These grooves are known as sulci. 
He noted that an examiner could have misinterpreted this as at Dylan's age, the skull is still growing and expanding. So everybody's might look a little different at that point. The prosecution did point out that Dr. Anderson used a lower magnification microscope than Dr. France had, and that could have changed how he viewed his findings. Dr. Anderson also mentioned the skull being moved by animals and specifically pointed out coyote activity. Though we know from the beginning part of the trial that this line of reasoning was pretty thoroughly debunked by the biologist that prosecutors had on as a witness. Next up was James Haw, an animal behavioral expert. He disputed the cadaver dog evidence, most notably pointing out that the dog had hit multiple times on Middle Mountain Road, most likely not far from Dylan's remains, but never found any actual items. They then had on Colorado Bureau of Investigation Special Agent Kevin Torres, The defense brought to light that there was no evidence of blood in Mark Redwine's truck, so kind of trying to back off on evidence there and showing that there might be a little bias in explaining the story. Next up was Dr. Eric Smith, who is a tool marks and firearms expert, and his findings were that the marks on Dylan's skull were inconclusive. He couldn't rule in if they were made by a tool or not. Another interesting witness for the defense was Karen Alexander, who was a former romantic interest of Mark Redwine's. She had indicated that Mark Redwine was just devastated with Dylan's death. And she also recalled an incident from when she was visiting in 2011, so a year prior to Dylan's disappearance. She said that they had been having a barbecue and that Dylan had cut himself with the knife. Where he cut himself was in the living room of Mark Redwine's home, where the blood evidence was found. She said she'd never previously discussed this with investigators, and she'd also not discussed it when she made an appearance on the Dr. Phil show. Up next was Richard Swayze, who worked at United Pipeline with Mark Redwine, and he saw Redwine right after Dylan was last seen. He testified that Redwine was chipper and didn't really appear that anything was wrong. So I'm not quite sure how strong of a witness he was for the defense. The last witness for the defense was forensic scientist Richard Eichlinboom. He said that the blood evidence did not support Dylan's body being moved in Mark Redwine's pickup. So again, enforcing what the CBI investigator had said that blood evidence was not found there. He also said that based on the amount of blood found, he could not come to the conclusion that Dylan died a brutal death or that there was any form of cleanup in the home. But when the prosecution pushed, he did admit to the possibility that a single blow to the head with Dylan bleeding little could still explain what was found as evidence. So it seems that testimony also came out a little bit in the wash. And those are all of the witnesses that the defense called. So like I said, no big smoking gun, but they did try to poke some holes in some of the testimony from earlier in the trial. They did not address the photos that he had found and any effect on Dylan and Redwine's relationship that did not come up during the defense's witnesses or closing statements. And Redwine did not take the stand, leaving us with certainly more questions than answers in this case. 
In closing arguments, the prosecution pushed to reconfirm all of the things that they had painted for the jury so far. They pushed that Mark Redwine was the last person to see Dylan alive. They painted the picture again of an angry Mark Redwine killing Dylan in a rage. They emphasized his lack of concern and participation in searches for Dylan. And they also pointed to the deteriorating relationship between Dylan and Mark Redwine prior to the incident. The defense, on the other hand, said that there was really lack of evidence and that there were a lot of questions on how exactly Dylan died, which we can certainly agree to having a lot of questions there. And they urged the jury to make a decision based on evidence, not on the theory of what happened, and that the jury should not come back with a guilty verdict. Deliberation for this trial took one day. Mark Redwine was found guilty of both charges placed against him, which was second-degree murder and child abuse resulting in death. Now, a reminder here, second-degree murder means that that it was not pre-planned. A first-degree murder is something that somebody has planned and then executed. So the prosecution put forward the theory that Mark Redwine got angry and killed Dylan out of rage, leading to that second-degree murder charge. Sentencing has been scheduled for October 8th. And I will make sure to do another follow-up when this does happen. So make sure you are subscribed to make sure you get that update. It will most likely be a midweek content. He is currently facing up to 48 years in prison. And I am assuming there would most likely be an allowance for time served, which at this point is about five years. So he, in that case, would serve 43 years, which if Redwine served All of that time would mean he would be over 100 and most likely die in jail. But we will see in sentencing if he will have an option for parole. That is really in the judge's hands now. In Shane Benjamin's reporting for the journal, Elaine, Dylan's mom, said that the verdict ended this chapter of the story, but that, quote, We're never going to get closure because you can't have closure when a piece of your life and your heart is missing, unquote. She went on to thank the 6th Judicial District Attorney's Office and the La Plata County Sheriff's Office for finally getting the case to trial, as well as the community for its support. And now here we are. And in a way, it's kind of strange as uh, great that it is that Mark Redwine has been found guilty. It still leaves an open wound there and in a way is kind of anticlimactic. But let's wrap up today with a few musings. Musing number one. So I did find in some of the information that Dylan's fishing pole did turn back up. Mark Redwine had initially told investigators it wasn't there, which led them to search closer to the Vallecito Reservoir, assuming that Dylan might have gone fishing. And that pushed the investigation away from Middle Mountain, where Dylan's remains were eventually found. Mark Redwine then found the pole in his garage behind something. This find came after the first set of Dylan's remains were found on Middle Mountain. Pretty interesting there. That was a piece that we had not gotten before, and it definitely shows. I mean, Mark Redwine has been convicted. He has been found guilty of Dylan's murder, so it also shows that he 
was actively trying to point the investigation in a different direction just shortly after Dylan was reported missing. Musing number two. I found Karen Alexander's testimony for the defense very interesting. This was the woman who was Mark Redwine's romantic interest, and she mentioned that Dylan had cut himself with a knife in 2011 when she was visiting there. And I just find this really interesting. I'm not trying to say anything about Karen. I don't know her. I don't know her deal. But if you truly believed someone and you believed they were innocent, wouldn't this be really important information? And wouldn't you like be like screaming it from the rooftops? I mean, there's definitely the possibility that we all forget things or forget the timeline of things. So that's totally possible. But it just seems a little suspect. Musing number three. Now, I've said this before, and I will say it again. The defense really did as much as they could in this case. When your person is guilty, your person is just guilty. But they certainly tried to poke a lot of reasonable doubt into this case. And as much as people maybe don't want to talk about the defense in a case like this, you have to understand that we need this balance in the justice system because that person is not always guilty. If it was you and you were innocent and there was just odd things that added up to get you in that seat, you would want a defense like this that really did as much as they could. So I feel like we can't accept pure justice without accepting that we need that system to work as it does. And it doesn't work all the time, I will admit that. Sometimes justice doesn't prevail, sometimes a defense or a prosecution doesn't do what they need to do or a jury doesn't see things the way that they've painted it. Those things happen. But I do just like to call out there that this is a balance that we need and it's part of why our justice system works better than some other countries. Musing number four. I know nobody wants to think about this, but I have to bring it up. I certainly hope that Mark Redwine does not have a case for an appeal. Based on my law knowledge and what I saw play out in the courtroom, I really don't think there's a lot there that the defense could work with. My only questionable portion is they did not move this jury out of La Plata County. So I do wonder if he would have a case for appeal based on an impartial jury. Although, I mean, this case has gone national. I mean, it's very hard to find somebody who is impartial. But... That's really the only outlet that I can see them being able to go after for an appeal. But I certainly hope for Elaine and Corey and the rest of Dylan's family that this certainly is not the case and that they do not have to go through a courtroom trial again. This case, quite honestly, is nothing short of a tragedy. About an hour after the verdict came out, I actually was walking to my car and in front of me was a father and son and, you know, kiddo, probably five or six years old, typical little boy, kind of off in La La Land, bopping around. And the dad was just walking straight ahead. And I would watch this little boy kind of get, you know, behind his dad looking at something. Then he'd run up to him and, you know, there was comfort and he'd run up to his dad and look at him and they'd look at each other and he'd kind of you know, get caught up in something again and get behind his dad and then run up to his dad again and walk alongside him. And watching that just broke my heart because no relationship like that should end the way that this one has. 
No son, no child that looks to their parent for comfort should experience the worst kind of thing from their parent. And while an hour prior to that, I was so ecstatic to know that there was closure in this case, it made me realize there is no closure. Because unfortunately for Dylan's family, they still don't have Dylan. And unfortunately for a number of kids in the U.S. and in the world, they receive ill treatment at the hands of their parents, whether it's abuse physical, sexual, or emotional, or it's a case like this that ends in a child that is no longer here. But while that makes me so sad, I can at least say we have justice for Dylan. Thank you so much for listening today. I am so glad to have been able to share some kind of conclusion in this trial with you. Make sure to follow or subscribe, and you can find me on social media at Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can also visit the website, altitudecrime.com, for source materials and merch. Thank you for spending this time with me. Thank you for honoring Dylan with me over the last couple of months. And I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 16, Justice for Dylan, the State of Colorado versus Mark Redwine trial concludes, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music by Podbean.com.